You know, uh, years ago, <laughs> there was, uh, after the hordes of Genghis Khan had ripped through China and devastated this vast country, uh, the Ming Dynasty took note and they didn't want to be defeated in the same way. So they fortified and built up what's called the Great Wall of China. And the Great Wall of China seems like an impregnable fortress. It's uh, 25 feet wide in many places. It's 25 feet and higher in many places. It's a, an incredible 5,500 miles long. That's almost twice the length of our country, the United States. So think of flying all the way across, across the country at incredible speed, how long that takes and then almost double that, and that's the length of that wall. And the Ming Dynasty felt pretty comfortable because they had no fear of the enemy from without. Yet what they weren't watching for was the enemy within. And they let their guard down, and they were focused on the enemy without. But a particular general, uh, Wu Sungai, he basically cut a deal with the Manchus, Manchus people and he opened the gates wide for them one day. And they marched in, and the Ming Dynasty fell within weeks. It was no more. All because they weren't vigilant and wise to the enemy from within. That was interesting. We need to be careful. That happened in, uh, in May of 1644. Uh, uh, you've heard the story of the Trojan horse. What happened with the Ming Dynasty, there's truth to that. The Trojan horse deal with the Greeks and so forth, that's more legendary. But the whole idea about, oh, you're getting help. But is that help based on God's truth? The enemy can come in in stealth. And we are going through 1 Timothy chapter 1. Please turn there. We've already covered the first two verses. Uh, when we, for our first verse, I told you we do kind of introductory stuff as we go because you kind of get an idea instead of going through what, you know, why Paul wrote Timothy and everything else and then repeating myself, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do a little bit of the introduction throughout the first several messages. Uh, but if in 1 Timothy we went through verse 1, then the next week we went through verse 2, and this week we'll go through verse 3 and 4. We'll go through two verses today, amen. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to teach in such a way where you really understand the book, you know. And in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we call these the pastoral epistles, amen. Because these are young pastors that Paul establishes with, under his apostolic authority to start these churches. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you, that's the verse we're studying, verse 3 and 4, but let's look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia. So this is something Paul had already done. Something he had already urged Timothy, or Timothy regarding. And he's reminding him now by way of letter, which God instrumentally brought forth as the word of God through Paul. As I urged you when I went to, into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people, that you may what? Command certain people not to what? Teach false doctrines any longer. So some false doctrines had emerged in that church there at Ephesus. Ephesus is an incredibly part, an incredible piece of geography in the early church. It was a center of paganism where they worshiped Artemis. Maybe you've seen the goddess Artemis and she has many breasts. 
Some say there are many testicles because she was a fertility goddess. Even though she was a virgin, they'd sacrifice bulls to her and place their sexual parts there. Men who became her priests would castrate themselves and bury their parts at her idol and so forth. I won't get too graphic there, but the bummer if you were her priest, okay? And, and she was a virgin, which is really crazy, but people would frolic and do all kinds of wicked things in the name of this goddess. And paganism was right there, Gnosticism, or what we call proto-Gnosticism, what we call incipient Gnosticism, was rampant there as well. Uh, the mystery religions and the, the you know, Greek philosophies and mythological teachings of all sort. And Paul wants Timothy there because there's a spirit there, demonic entities there, uh, spirit of Antichrist and what have you already there, uh, Satan's fallen angels, trying to upset and off the gospel. It's not just men. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, preach the, uh, he says in very, very clearly, the Holy Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctors of demons a few chapters later. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against what? Principalities and powers, Amen rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual weakness in high places. So there's a spiritual war that they are in. And Paul is letting Timothy know, you need to be there and stay at Ephesus as the head pastor, hence we call these the pastoral epistles, to set things straight and command certain men not to teach false doctrines. Okay, go ahead and look at First uh, Timothy and when you go to, go to, I know you're there already, but go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. You want to see why Timothy wrote 1 Timothy? Well, verse 3 is one reason, right? First thing on the agenda is commanding certain people not to teach sound doctrine. But at the same time, we see, read in verse 15, but, and this is 1 Timothy 3, 15, but in case I am delayed, I write to, so that you will what? You know how one will, how to, will know how to conduct himself, but in case I am delayed, I write to you, uh, that you will know how one ought to conduct himself where? In the household of God, which is what? The church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So it's what to come against and it's what to establish, amen? And how to conduct, how one ought to conduct themselves, not just leaders like Timothy, pastor, uh, but elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, a little bit earlier in the first verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about establishing elders. Verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a, it is a fine work he desires to do. You want to be an elder someday? You want to be an overseer? It's a fine work you desire to do. But there's qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Okay? So if you're an elder... You don't have more than one wife, amen? Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. He must be able to teach, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So if he can't stand up to his own children, how's he gonna stand up to false teachers? Do you get it? If he can't manage his own household, how's he gonna manage the church of God? And not a new convert, verse 6, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
So he's, he's, he's saying these elders, they not only must you know, be the husband of one wife, not many, but manage their households well because they're going to stand up against these false teachers. He says they must be able to teach. They must be able to teach. Okay? Uh, you can't appoint an elder who doesn't know any scripture, you know? And he has to be able to stand against false doctrine. And it's interesting that we have this because in Titus, which is written to another pastor, one, we've got First and Second Timothy and Titus, another pastoral epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, listen to this, of the elders, one of the qualifications, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So, to be a leader in the church, now it's interesting because sometimes at churches, they don't look and say, hey, are you qualified to be an elder? You know, they don't say, hey, are you able to, do you know the word of God? Are you able to refute false doctrine and so forth? Sometimes churches look for lawyers, they look for doctors. I'm not opposed to lawyers and doctors becoming elders as long as they know the word of God and they have integrity and they preach it, amen? And, and they, have the ben- they, they love the bride of Christ, they love his church, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? But elders must be men of God. And we... Paul, as a lead elder, okay, and in the church, we look and we understand here at Blessed Hope Chapel that elders and pastors are understood synonymously, okay, and we do recognize there are elders who teach and rule well. It, it distinguishes them from the other elders as far as their function, so there's different elders that do different things. We understand that, but there's this concern, there's this concern that the church would be deceived by subterfuge from within, and it's already happening because the church at, that Timothy's at in Ephesus, which is, by the way, the church was located ultimately or early on in Jerusalem. Do you remember the first church council? If I asked you where the first church council was, what would you say? Acts chapter 15, right? Church gets together to decide whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved, right? Paul shows up there, Barnabas, James, Peter's there, right? And they decide, no, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the law of Moses, right? Our forefathers could not keep that yoke of the law, the Jewish forefathers. How could we put this on the Gentiles? Amen? Now, what's fascinating about this is uh, we have the first church council there. And that church at Jerusalem suffers so much persecution as you read through the book of Acts. And decades later, the church, the main church was mainly found, guess where? Not in Jerusalem anymore. Jerusalem got sacked in 70 AD, just 37 or so years after Christ. So now it was in Ephesus. That's where most Christian teaching and leaders, in fact, the Gospel of John, or I should say 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written to the church at Ephesus. 1st and 2nd Timothy, written to the church at Ephesus. That's five books right there. The book of Ephesians, right? The letter of Ephesians. Another book, that's six. The book of Revelation, seven letters, one's unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? Amen. There's another letter to the church at Ephesus, right? So it's interesting. There's more letters directed to that, prov- that area than any other church and more leaders there. And if I had more time, I could talk to you about the letter of Polycarp that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. I'm sorry. I could talk about the other, the church fathers that wrote uh, letters to the different cities, but Ephesus, one was on his way to be martyred, and he wrote to the church at Ephesus. Now, it's interesting. They're concerned about the enemy coming in. Paul, usually at the beginning of his letters, has a greeting, okay? 
Here there's no greeting. It's not that there's no greeting. I should say this. He usually gives thanks. He usually has, it says some words of thanksgiving. There's no words of thanksgiving at the beginning of this letter. And you know what's interesting? He usually does that, but there's a few places Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that to, in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that in Galatians. And you know why he doesn't do that? Because all, those, all three of those churches have let false gospels grow. Perhaps that's the reason. We don't know for sure, but there is something going on there because at the church, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a false gospel being preached and false apostles. And Paul says to the church at Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I fear, verses 2 through 4, I fear lest by any means as a serpent deceived Eve through his subtlety. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Told him, you shall become as God. As the serpent deceived Eve by telling her that she could become God, that so your minds would be corrupted from your simple devotion to Christ to believe in a different gospel, to receive a different spirit, to believe in a different Jesus. In other words, that Satan would use Christi, a form of Christianity to get you to believe that you could become a God. So it's interesting about this to me. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes on to warn about false apostles, verses 13 through 15. And they transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. It's no wonder for God, for Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel of what? Light. So it's no wonder he says that his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So there's no letter of thanksgiving early on. There's no, I should say, giving of thanks early on to the Corinthians. There's no giving of thanks to the, to, in the book of Jude. But what is there a warning of? Paul said, or I should say Jude writes, the half-brother of Jesus, amen, in verses 3 and 4, he says that, you know, I was going to write to you, you know, about our common salvation. He says, but I decided to write to you because God moved upon his heart to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons, he says, have crept in unaware. The enemy within again, Right? have crept in unnoticed, as the NASB has it, unaware, as the King James has it. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. And then he goes on to say, those who turn the, go the, the gospel, twist, turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and savior, Jesus Christ. So you have this warning again. And he says, hey, don't deviate from the gospel which was once for all delivered to the saints. Not once only, or I should say not only, only once, not twice, three, four, five times. The gospel that you've received is a gospel that's once for all, he says. And so therefore, don't, don't go for another gospel. Don't go for a different gospel. Test everything by the original article, amen? Like bankers are taught. You got a $100 bill? The banker's taught. What's this $100 bill look like? Here's this watermark. Here's this thing over here. Here's that. That way when the teller sees, the FBI teaches them, in some cases, other bankers teach them that are more experienced. Here's what you're looking for when you see a $100 bill. You get to know what the genuine article looks like. Then when a false $100 bill comes, you spot it like, oh, I see it. And that way, you know the once and for all original article. You can spot the counterfeit when it comes. So Paul has no thanks too, no thanksgiving as well when he writes to the Galatians. Because he's like, let's get right to business here. I think that's really what's going on in Jude. I think that's what's going on in Timothy right here. I think I mean, Jude, they've crept in unaware. 
Timothy, correct the false teaching that's within, right? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are so quickly being, or quickly deserting him who's called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is really not another. They says, if we or even an angel from heaven preaches another gospel to you than that which you've received, let him be what? Accursed. In other words, hold on to the once for all gospel. If the angel comes later saying this is the gospel, don't believe it. And this is important and this is huge because he wants them not to be deceived. So that's why when we have been going through Timothy and we find ourselves in verse three, there's such an emphasis on correcting false teaching. And it's so important that we correct false teaching. And Galatians is just really, really serious because some of the false gospel that they were preaching is that you've got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the, 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 the new moons. You've got to keep the Jewish calendar. And that was a different gospel because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. Amen. And Paul says, you know what Paul said the gospel is? Do you know what the gospel is? If I ask you, what, what, is, what does the Bible say? What does it say in the scripture what the gospel is? Who said what? 1 Corinthians 15, amen. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I declare unto you the gospel by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to that which has been preached to you. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Amen that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, amen? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we get into heaven is through what Christ did for us on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And praise God, every spring we celebrate his death for our sins, amen? And for our resurrection, I'm looking so forward to uh, this Sunday me message and the next one, we're looking at his death for our sins and the crucifixion. But we have to be careful always and not let your guard down. That's why I always say, test everything I say from the pulpit, amen? Don't put your guard down because if you have a guest speaker, I'm here, oh, well, you know what, praise God. Joe's just always in the word of God, praise God. No, you, I could go off in some way, amen? So you test everybody and we hold fast. The Bible says, test everything, hold fast to that which is good, amen? Now it's interesting, Paul doesn't say to them, hey guys, watch out for Nero. He's a raving lunatic, and he's going to cut my head off someday, which he did. He, in 2 Timothy, he says he's about ready to be put to death, basically. But he's not concerned about the martyrdom. And warning about martyrdom, that was happening already. He looked at the threat of false teaching as being the greater threat. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 30, uh, Paul had warned the church at Ephesus, the same church that we're reading about in 1 Timothy, where Timothy is at, that among their own selves within again, among them own, their own selves within, among their elders, people would be led astray. Listen to what he writes. Therefore, Paul writes, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why would Paul be innocent of the blood of all men? Why would Paul be innocent of the blood of all men? because he warned everybody, amen? For I did not shrink, listen to what he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, King James, the whole counsel of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, that he preached both the goodness and the severity of God. He preached both the goodness, do you catch that? And the severity of God. If you only preach the severity, you're missing out on the goodness, you don't preach the cross, you're in trouble. If you only preach the goodness and preach about the cross, but you don't preach about hell, you don't warn people about hell, 
Jesus warned far more about hell than he did, about, than he did promise about heaven, amen? Then you're in trouble. He warned that it'd be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He warned that there'd be a place of outer darkness, a place of thirst that would never be quenched, a place where the worm never dies. Jesus said so much about it. Yet we want to preach a gospel where we just talk about heaven. Oh, there's really no hell. Some are teaching right now that there's really no hell now. Or only a few people go there. But Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. Amen? But narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Amen? And that's exactly what we see, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we see few following Jesus, not many. Amen? Now, it's interesting. He said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be on guard for the flock. Watch over the flock as shepherds. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Wow. He purchased the church with his own blood. It cost Jesus a lot. He cares about the church. He cares about his bride. Amen. Amen. He poured his blood out for the bride. And our hearts should break for people that get led astray. And we should, we should if he's going to pour his blood out to buy this bride, the church that belongs to him, the people that belong to him, how much should we be making sure we stand against false teaching that would lead the people away from what Jesus did and lead them away from the gospel? He goes on to say, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Who? Who's you? The church at Ephesus. Not sparing the flock. So the church of Ephesus would be devastated to a degree. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Catch this. And from among your what? Own selves, men will arise. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So you're gonna, you have elders in the church at Ephesus who would want to get a following who maybe they have some kind of ego trip going on or insecurity or whatever, and they say perverse things. They twist things. They twist scripture. Maybe they speak against other people in the congregation or what have you to draw disciples after them, okay? They cause dissension in the church to get a following, and that's wicked. Now, it's interesting. What's interesting here to me is that some of these elders are probably already dealt with because Paul said this in Acts chapter 20 before he writes this letter to Timothy, because the assault had already been on. He warns Timothy that these false teachers are going to come. Then this false teaching starts happening, right? And people are being led astray. And Paul wants Timothy to set more elders in the church. Why? Not because it's a brand new church, but because elders were fulfilling the prophecy that Paul had given. And some of those elders might have been Alexander, the coppersmith, Hymenaeus, because they're mentioned in 1 Timothy, back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 19 and 20, we read this. This is where we started. What does he say? He talks to Timothy about keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered what? Shipwreck in regard to their faith. Catch that? You could shipwreck your faith. Don't tell anybody once you're in the ship, you're always in the ship. The Bible warns about shipwrecking your faith. Among these are Hymenaeus, in the Greek is Humaneos, are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Catch that? He brings church discipline upon Hymenaeus and Alexander. And in 2 Timothy 4.14, he says, Alexander, the coppersmith, has done me much harm. He was a man who worked with metals. And it's kind of interesting because if you go back in the book of Acts, 
And you see when, and, and you read the book of Acts, it's really quite interesting. In chapter 19, verse 33, in that whole chapter, a lot of that chapter, there is a church at Ephesus thriving, but then there's a temple of Artemis. And there's Paul actually, you know, strengthening and establishing the church at Ephesus, I should say. And there's preaching going on a distance from where Paul is and a skirmish ends happening. Because why? Because Artemis is pagan, you know, gross goddess, man. That there's so many people that followed her that so many people were turning to Christ that they ceased buying her idols. There were a bunch of little idols being sold of Artemis and, and the silversmiths were making a ton of money and they got really ticked off and they got the mob yelling, great is Artemis, right, of Ephesus. Great, of Ar- great is Artemis of Ephesus. And she was called Artemis by the Romans. She was called Diana by the Greeks. And guess what happened? You know who went out there to quell them? A believer who was one of Paul's trusted confidants named Alexander. And he tried to quell the crowd to, to mellow out. But because he's Jewish, they got upset because it's a pagan city, right, of Ephesus. And, and they got really upset. Many scholars, or I should say some scholars, believe it's the same Alexander because he was a coppersmith. So he was chosen because he's going to talk to the silversmith and so forth that have started, this, that started a riot, right? And he represents the church. Well, it may or may not be. We don't know for sure. We don't have extra biblical writing at that time that says it was him, you know? But what we do have is conjecture. So it's possibly the same Alexander. We can't be absolutely sure. But I'll tell you what. What are they to do in the churches? They're supposed to come against false doctrine. And in Titus, and by the way, Titus, and 1 Timothy were written about the same time. In fact, the similarities between Titus and 1 Timothy are stunning. And you can see like, like when you look at Ephesians, right? And Colossians, when Paul wrote both those letters probably from the same prison cell around the same time. And he's having similar problems in Crete, similar false doctrines being taught. And you know what he tells Titus? Yeah, you're supposed to correct and refute the false doctrines. But listen to what he says. What if people persist in teaching false doctrine at a church? How do we apply that in our own fellowship? But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Brothers and sisters, do not divide over foolish controversies. Things that are not important, you know. Well, is, is the second coming of Christ important? Yeah, that's important. Is our salvation important? Yeah, that's important, right? Is the Bible being the word of God or not important? Yes, that's important. Is a virgin birth, birth important? Yes, that's important. Is salvation by grace through faith important? Yeah, that's important, right? Is... is you know, the, is pneumatology the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we need to be born of the Spirit important? Yes, that's important. The Trinity important? Yeah, that's important. But foolish controversies and genealogies, arguing about genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Because these folks, as you're going to see, and if we continue reading First Timothy beyond verse 3 into verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, you'll see that these, these wannabe teachers, and they were already teachers at Ephesus, were twisting the law, Paul says. And they're misusing the law. Like those in Galatia trying to make people think they had to keep the Old Testament law to be saved. But that's, I'm running ahead now. I'm trying to give you a little bit of the nature of those false teachings though. Then then you know what he says? Verse 10, reject a heretical man or a divisive man or a factious man after a first and second warning. Paul tells Timothy, those elders who continue to sin, rebuke them before all. He says, in Titus, he says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So if a teacher in the church starts teaching things contrary to the word of God, 
it's important, it's vital that he's confronted. And if he continues to teach it, then you warn him again. And if he still refuses, just like in Matthew 18, Jesus says, go to him privately, right? When you're confronting someone to sin, if they refuse, go to them again, right? But then bring it before the church and consider him a heathen and a tax gatherer. After the second warning, if the person still won't listen, well, then why are you even here, you know? Why are you even here if you're teaching contrary to what the church has historically believed? Now, it's interesting. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may what? Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That word right there. How many have, anybody have a translation that says command certain men? Okay, because that Greek word right there is paragelo, okay? And paragelo is a word that's translated command elsewhere. Uh, and it means command. It's a word of authority. It's used by generals who command, when they command their troops. It's used by judges who command uh, somebody to come to court, a summons, you know. And Paul is basically telling Timothy, you need to go before the church and command these false teachers to stop teaching their heresies. Now, I want to say to you, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's important that we understand this, is we, not all false teachings are on the same level as far as how destructive it is. What do I mean? Well, let's say somebody comes in here and they teach that, you know what? Uh, Jesus is not the son of God and he did not die for our sins. That would, would you agree that's a heresy? Yeah. That's two heresies, right? And then we'd say, we love you, man, but that's, and we'd plead with them from scripture, try to show them what the scriptures say about Jesus. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, it says, amen. Hallelujah. And here he clearly died for our sins. And we'd say, you know what? You're not, that's so contrary to Orthodox Christian doctrine that you cannot be here and teach that, okay? And we would ask them lovingly and we'd pray for them, Lord, you know, win them back to you to leave if they refuse to repent of that false teaching. However, let's say we have somebody here that believes it's not good to eat meat and that God doesn't want us to eat meat and so forth. Well, that as a church leadership, we would disagree. We'd say no in Mark chapter 7 when the religious leaders were upset with Jesus' disciples because they were eating without washing their hands. He said, it's not what goes into the body that defiles the man, but it's what, what? Goes out of the body. And it says, by saying this in Mark 7, he was declaring all foods clean, right? And then when he brings the meat down, you know, uh, before Cornelius and says, kill and eat, and some of it's and kosher meat. Peter, Peter's like, I haven't eaten this Jesus since I was a kid. And he says, don't, he's uh, this unclean food. And Jesus says, don't call unclean what I've called clean to Peter. Amen. And at 1 Timothy chapter 4, when it says the spirit speaks expressly, the latter times some will depart from the faith and giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. It goes on to say that they'll forbid marriage. And they'll teach people not to eat certain foods, which have, are sanctified through prayer, right? And thanksgiving, which God created to be enjoyed for food. And by the way, that's, we're going to cover that when we get to verse 4. Because verse 4 starts to identify some of their teachings and what they were about. Well, guess what? How would we deal with someone teaching or someone believing you can't eat 
it's, you know, someone's in the fellowship, they're in the front row, they're here every, every, thir- every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, fellowshiping, and they just don't even meet, they don't believe God wants to see meet. We disagree scripturally, but guess what? We don't make them leave. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 14, one person esteems one day above another, one esteems all days alike. One well, believe it's okay to eat, you know, food that others consider impure. But Paul said, I know eating it is nothing to me. He knows it's, it's okay to eat it by faith. But he says, if I cause my brother to stumble, I won't eat it in front of them. Now we graduate to love because it's not a salvific issue, right? Whether that brother's eating meat or not. But you know when it becomes a serious issue? If that brother starts telling everybody else in the church, you cannot eat meat or you're going to go to hell. Woo, now it just changed. And that's been our practice. We've had brothers and sisters through the years where a few here and there just feel that's not good to eat meat. And they feel spiritually it'd be better not to eat meat. I've, I've seen that a, a, two or three times throughout the years. I remember one time some younger brothers in the faith talking about, yeah, Joe, we're, looking, we're thinking, man, that it's probably not good to eat like lobster and, and shrimp and stuff like that. They're in the Old Testament. They're young, you know, in the Lord. I go, brothers, man, we're under the new covenant, man. We're camping. The bacon is holy before the Lord, man. <laughs> as long as it's prayed for, you know. And uh, I didn't say that, but, you know, there was no bacon cooking right now. I'm just thinking what I'd say if it was morning time and I'm getting a whiff of that bacon. But I was letting the guys know. I go, hey, you guys, you can choose to do that. I go, but don't you teach other people that. You know what? Years later, I read in Justin Martyr. I love to read the early church fathers, second, third century Christian leaders, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. And I just was reading in Justin Martyr a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, where Justin Martyr was talking in his dialogue with Trifle the Jew, defending Christianity. He was one of the top apologists in the second century, along with Irenaeus. And and Justin Martyr was like, say, Trifle, hey, we have people here that abstain from eating meat, certain, certain unclean meat in their minds. And we're fine with them being our brothers here, as long as they don't teach it to others. So at Blessed Hope, if you believe in what we call a damnable heresy, that Jesus is not the Son of God. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word, and verse, by the way, 2 and 3, says Jesus created all things, and nothing came into being but by Him. He created everything. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? So if you deny that Jesus Christ created all things and that there's nothing being created but by him, you deny that he became flesh or you deny that too, that would be a damnable heresy. We say, uh-uh, that's unbiblical, right? But if you believe that you're not supposed to eat meat for yourself, you can, and you're still trusting in Jesus, amen, you still believe he's God in the flesh that died for your sins. It's not gonna be a problem unless, and we call those flammable teachings instead of damnable flammable because they have the potential to become damnable in what way as long because if you start teaching them hey you can't eat meat man you can't please god unless you eat this specific diet that's how you get right with god otherwise you're not right with god Woo! now it's become what a different gospel because now you're telling them that this is how you get to heaven are you with me so just like hey somebody might be once saved always saved i totally disagree with once saved always saved that's not in the bible but if they believe that and they're not teaching other people, yeah, once you're saved, you can do whatever, you know? And they just say, hey, I just believe once I'm saved, I'm always saved no matter what. And we'll still have great discussions on it. But they still love Jesus and they're not trying to convince other people that they can do what thou wilt after they get saved. That's between them and Jesus and we'll encourage them. But guess what? 
It only, it, it's flammable. They're okay as long as they're trusting Jesus, putting their head on the pillow at night, seeking Jesus. But when they start living a wicked lifestyle because they think they're secure no matter what, right? Or start teaching others that you're secure no matter what you do. Then we say, uh-oh, now it's becoming dangerous. Do you, are you with me? So what Paul's concerned about, though, is heresies where people are misteaching the law. That comes up in a few verses in Timothy, which we'll be studying pretty soon, uh, and where it becomes my, very serious. Now, Paul tells Timothy in, one, in chapter 2, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power and of love and a sound mind, because he's concerned that Timothy might be timid because he's young. So Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. So he's telling Timothy, you need to be bold. You need to take a stand with what's true. When I started pastoring this fellowship, I was 27 years old. Okay? You got the big eyebrows going on. It's not that. It's like seven, eight years ago, bro. You know? <laughs> that was a long time ago, man. That's like 32 years ago or so. 31, 32. Losing count. I'm getting so old. You know? But I had... You know, I knew that scripture said, no one, let no one despise your youth. I just preached the word of God. I know what the word says. I'm going to love people and so forth. But sound doctrine is so important, okay? It's so important. Doctrine is foundational. To, to, I mean, don't, don't let anybody say that sound doctrine is not important. Paul's saying command it, right? Command them not to teach false teachings. You know, your lives are built on the, if you're a Christian, your lives are built on the teachings of Jesus Christ, Amen. The doctrines of Christ. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. Amen? Amen. So are, is your life built on Christ's teachings and on his gospel? Amen? So guess what? Jesus said, when the storm comes, if you build your life on his words, if you'll be like a house built on a rock, amen? And you'll stand. But if you don't build your house on his words, you'll be like a man who built his house in the sand. Then when the storm came, the rain, the winds, the floods, boom, he says, great was that fall. And guess what? You know what thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of churches are saying now today? Doctrine is not important. Doctrine is not important. You might as well tell somebody who's building their house on a mountain, oh, building a, putting that on a, a cement foundation or a rock, that's not important, man. You're good. It doesn't matter. You just, just build your house, man. Just say, I love Jesus, and you're good. Man, you are setting them up for a fall. So we must make sure that our teaching, our, 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 our doctrine is the teaching of God's word. That's why we're warned not to add or take away to what he's written. Deuteronomy says, don't add to his words or take them away. Amen. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 6 says, don't add to his words or you'll receive a rebuke, right? Revelation chapter 22, 18 and 19 says, if you add to his words, and many have added to his word, the plagues in this book will be added to you, right? Can you imagine on judgment day how many people would have plagues out of them? If you take away from this book, he says, your name will be taken, or I should say, your place will be taken out of the holy city and the things written in this book. That is pretty scary. That's why you don't want to add books onto the Bible. Amen? That's why you don't want to uh, take books out of the Bible. Amen? That's why you want to hold tenaciously to the Word of God. And you want to be built on the foundations of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said in Psalm 127, Except the Lord build the house, the labors labor in vain. Amen? Amen? So we must build our lives on Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, man. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you want to build your life on God's word. Understand what covenant you're under. We're under the new covenant. We're under the, 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 the doctrine of Christ. Amen. We're under the, 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 uh, the, the law of liberty, the New Testament law, the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. But all scripture is profitable, amen. And, but you start just messing with Genesis, the first few chapters. Oh, well, creation is not important. 
you know, I went to, I was invited, you know, and I thanked them for inviting me, but I was invited with a lot of prestigious leaders, about 20 different Christian leaders, four or five years ago into a house in the valley, very beautiful home, and there were, you know, different leaders speaking, two different leaders speaking there. And it was actually, man, it had to be six years ago or so because uh, Francis Collins, who was one of the leaders under, uh, no, it was, about, it was during Obama's second term, at the end of his second term, when I was invited there, uh, leader for Westmont Bible College and Francis Collins, who was under Obama and he was the guy that cracked or basically headed up mapping out the genome. And they wanted to talk to us Christian leaders. I didn't know why I was there. And they gave a spiel about how they want to mix evolution with creation and that God created us through evolution. And it just broke my heart. And they were asking Christians for guidance, Christian leaders, how can we get this in the churches? <laughs> and I just challenged them, you need to debate this with those who disagree with you so people can see where the truth is. And I said, but I see this as a, as a they said, well, we can reach college students this way that believe in Darwinism. They can say, we believe in evolution too, and that God it didn't start with Adam and Eve, but he just you know, started with evolution. And, and, I, and, I, and I said, no, that's a, that's a bridge that leads Christians over to Darwin. And once you take the foundational teaching away of creation, and there's so much evidence for creation. It's so obvious. But if you start saying, you know what, death was already in the world long before Adam, and God took millions and millions of years to, to bring forth a human being from slime or whatever you say, that's not biblical. The Bible tells us that death came in the world because of what? Because of sin, amen? And that death is our enemy, amen? But you start doing away with Adam and Eve, you start doing away with sin, guess what? If there's no fall of man and there's no sin that brings death, then you don't need Jesus. You understand that? You don't need the Savior. So false teaching and doing away with the foundational teachings of God's word destroy the gospel. That's why it's very important that we take a stand, that God is the creator, amen, of the universe. And that when you start saying, well, you know what? It wasn't really Adam and Eve. Could have been Adam, Frank, and Ted. No, Adam, Frank, and Ted can't bring forth babies. Neither can Eve, Diana, and Francine, okay? Takes, you don't have to be a biologist, amen? These days, the highest courts of land don't, aren't sure how to define a man or a woman for political reasons. I shouldn't say that because the Supreme Court, for the most part, they would, but they just, it's changing quick, guys. You start doing, doing with Adam and Eve, and the Bible says, you know, he, the animals and then the humans were different, and given authority over the animals, all produced according to their kind. Now you can claim to be an animal, or a male can claim to be a female, even though biologically, males are males and females are females. But if you do away with biblical teaching, the Bible says that the foundation, if the foundations are gone, how shall the righteous stand? Amen? If the foundations are gone, how shall the righteous stand? That's why I believe Darwin wrote to, uh, right when his book was being published, Origin of the Species, he thanked a fellow propagandist in a letter that you can read online, which I've seen more than once. And at the end of it, he says, P.S., Thank you for helping me propagate the gospel. Then he says, the devil's gospel. That's online. Okay? You can read the letter online. I've read a lot of his letters online. And nobody, nobody says that's, that's not a real letter. That's his real letter. It's the devil's gospel. Just like Nostradamus, one of the leaders of the occult in the past, there's a letter you can read online where he warns his own son 
not to get into sorcery because it's the devil's work and you'll have a horrible ending, you know? Wow, it's kind of like they, they tell the truth at points, you know? Uh, gender role, gender, gender confusion, homosexuality, all kinds of sexual perversion, having sex with animals. I mean, if, you know, if you don't want to read the scripture and understand what God, why God created us, how he created us different than animals, and he created us male and female, all kinds of confusion ensues, and then how do you even say things are right or wrong, you know? And now we have this incredible confusion, which we're going to be dealing with tomorrow. If you listen to our live podcast uh, at 5, we're going to be dealing with uh, Disney and Disney's deceit, you know, Disney scam. And now, you know, I've been warning about it for years, and I'm sure people thought, oh, Joe kind of goes too far sometimes because Disney's so wonderful. No, look at what's going on right now. Well, they used to be good. No, guess what? They were more subtle. They've always been pushing magic and sorcery on the kids and making it normative, which is just as much abomination as sexual perversion. Do you know that? So uh, we'll be doing something on, on Disney. But uh, chapter 1 Verse 3 again. Let's look at the next part of that verse. And by the way, if, if you haven't followed the news, what's going on with Disney right now? You guys see in the news? They're getting rid of boys and girls' bathrooms. Instead of welcome, ladies and gentlemen, it's welcome everyone. And some of their main, you know, writers and representatives in a Zoom call, they've been playing it. If you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I push the gay agenda and, you know, they let me do it. And I just, every, I put the gay stuff in everything I do. And, I, and, all, and all the movies and TV shows or whatever she works on. And they're bragging about it in the Zoom calls, not knowing people would see it. We've been saying this for a long time, that they're constantly, they have an agenda. And they're after your kids, okay? And Christians ought to know what's going on. And a lot of these people are just very deceived people. I pray that God will wake them up because some of them are deceived and others, but many of them are deceiving, obviously, right? Paul says deceiving and are deceived and deceiving and being deceived, right? So chapter 1, verse 3, the last part of that verse, such things, meaning these false teachings that he just underscored, promote controversial speculations rather than what? Advancing God's work, which is by faith. Amen? So they, pr they promote uh, <laughs> controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So, we don't have time to get into what comes right after this in, this in the next few verses after verse 5, but he's talking about their misuse of the law and the speculations that they are promoting. And it's important that you understand that uh, he goes on to talk about in verse 4 what those speculations are about. And let's look at verse 4. Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to what? Mere speculation rather than what? Furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Okay. Actually, I was quoting part of verse 4 earlier. But in verse 4, don't pay attention to what? Mythology. Made-up stories, fables, and endless genealogies. Okay? Which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So, when you start getting the weird genealogies, he's not talking about biblical genealogies. He's talking about extra biblical genealogies. He's talking about myths, not truth. That's the context here. He's talking about mythology and the genealogies that go around with mythology. Now, what he's talking about there, I believe, and I believe there's a lot of evidence for it, is he's talking about the proto-Gnosticism that was 
in the first century church. Proto or incipient Gnosticism wasn't your full-blown Gnosticism that you see in the second and third century, but the seeds of that Gnosticism were already being promoted. And the Gnostics taught that to get to the Paroma, which was their word for heaven, that you had to escape the physical world because it was created by an evil entity. The Demiurge, Yahweh, was bad. And the goal was to escape the, the prisons that were in these physical prisons. The physical world's evil. And we've all been trapped by the Demiurge. The Demiurge. And, and you want to get free from your body. through, And you got to get by these archons and these daemons and these demigods and these divine beings that are, that are evil, these, these evil entities that want to hold you in your body. And in doing so, you'll be set free. And when you're set free from your body, you can get to the Paroma, get to the ultimate depth. This, because really we're made to be spiritual beings, but this evil Yahweh trapped us in these physical bodies. How ridiculous is that, by the way? And we got to get by these things. And guess what? They had all kinds of these eons that will help you. Like kind of like a ladder of beings that descended from one another that you have to ascend through them to get to the Paroma, to get to the ultimate depth. But you have these archons trying to stop you. So how do you, how do you get past all these evil, wicked archons? How do you get past them to get to the Paroma? You have to learn the Gnosis. It was important to understand where you came from. It was to understand genealogies, un- understanding the succession of these different divine beings like the Lagos or, and Sophia, Christ, the different names, and understand how they descend, descended from one another so you could get this knowledge. So uh, you get into genealogies, all mythology and genealogies to escape the body. Well, what's the evidence that Paul has those things in mind, that he has Gnosticism in mind? I'm looking at the clock, and I'm realizing I'm done. But next week, well, we got four... Verse to three and part of verse four. Did it go fast or is it just me? It went fast, huh? Okay. Oh, I got 15 minutes, bro? Wait a minute. We start at seven now. Oh, we're good. You're right. Usually we stop at what? 8.45. Man, I thought, Lisa, make sure I know it's at seven and not 7.15 because I don't want to be late and everybody's waiting for me at the pulpit. And I swung. I, I did good, man. I, I think uh, I got here just like, five or 10 to seven, and praise the Lord. But now, and I said, oh, all worked out until here. Now I'm confused. I'm like, wait. Oh, that's right. We stop at 8.45. Now we stop at 8.30. Or 8.30. Thank you, Jonathan. Woo! I'm like, man, I did so much work on verse four. Okay, so we'll get into verse four a little bit. Now, it's interesting. Uh, let's look at verse four again. Nor to pay attention to myths, and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Okay? Now, this is critical because they give rise to mere what? Speculations. That's what mythology does. Aren't you glad that we have God's word and it's based on history? Amen? And based on eyewitness accounts of Christ's resurrection? Amen? When you start getting into weird speculative type things and you start camping there and you stay there, all of a sudden you find yourself not doing the administration, not doing the stewardship, not doing the work of God and not walking in faith and trusting the Lord and obeying him. Sometimes people spend, there, there are millions of professing Christians that spend all day long looking at conspiracy theories when they'll never change a diaper in the nursery. 
They're not giving a cold drink of water to a brother in need, or they're not encouraging people who are hurting, and they're not visiting people, encouraging people, and, and, and preaching the gospel because they're all caught up in constant conspiracy theories. And I'm not one to say all conspiracy theories are wrong. The word conspires from a Latin word that means for two or more people to get together, right? And conspire together. We just heard from Disney, right? One of the gals from Disney, right? One of the leaders, one of the, I should say, one of those who writes uh, the, the, the programming says she has a gay agenda, right? She puts it in everything. So yeah, there's things like that going around. It's important to be aware of those things. But if you camp out on those things constantly and that's all you focus on, you don't focus on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, right? So we're supposed to expose those things. So if someone's exposed them, amen, right? But then it says, awake, O sleeper, let the light of Christ shine on you. We've got to preach the gospel, amen? But you have some people, they never share the gospel with anybody. And if all you do is focus on what's all the weirdness in the world, there's, you know, who shot JFK? And next it's this next thing, and then it's this next thing. And that's all your focus, and you're not focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to miss out. Now, there's some things, I'm not saying you shouldn't, like, oh yeah, I just looked at, I'm not saying, you know, oh, God just spoke to me. I was just looking last night, who's, who killed JFK? I was looking into that whole thing. I'm not against that. I'm just saying don't camp out there on that forever, amen? Get to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things are interesting, I agree. But that's not really what Paul has in mind so much, anyway. What he really has in mind is these endless genealogies and mythology. And it's important to understand that because what was going on at Ephesus, we have an idea. Because we know that John, when he wrote 1 John, when he wrote his epistles, he was combating proto or incipient Gnosticism. We know that because Polycarp was his disciple. And Polycarp's disciple was Irenaeus. And we know from Irenaeus that he says Polycarp declared that John wrote the gospel of John to combat the Gnosticism. That's why John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means similar. They're similar to each other. The gospel of John is way different because the Gnostics were teaching, according to Polycarp, who sat under Irenaeus, John was going to a bathhouse and he saw that Serenthus was in there, an arch heretic, and he said, let us flee the bathhouse because the enemy of all truth is in there with his disciples, lest it fall upon our head. And they, and they fled. And that's why you'll read something strong things in 2 John like, you know, if one does not come bringing this doctrine, right, do not even greet him. And you're like, whoa, that's strong. Well, it's because there was an insurrection where these antichrist teachers, John says, had come in the church, right? And they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but that might be manifest that they were not of us. They left, right? But he says, but I'm concerned about you, the children, the born again ones, that you might be seduced by them. And he warns them. You know what he warns them about? Because Serenthus was teaching that Jesus and Christ were two different persons. Jesus was a human being like you and me. Wasn't beyond human at all. Just a human being. But the Christ consciousness, one of the eons, came and rested upon him. Therefore he was Jesus, but he was also had the Christ consciousness that we could all have. And that that happened when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. That was really the Christ came upon him. And just before he was crucified, the Christ Spirit left Jesus. And Jesus Christ wasn't crucified because Christ is different than Jesus. But Jesus was crucified. John says in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you're what? 
Antichrist. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into the world. He didn't become the Christ. Okay, and it's interesting because we read in 2 John, verse 7, that if anyone comes with this, doesn't come with the doctrine that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he's Antichrist, just like you read in 1 John. Now, it's interesting because that's why the Gospel of John starts out with how Jesus is God. He made everything. In verse 14, he became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And these things are written that you might believe, end of John now, chapter 20, the second last chapter, verse 30 and 31, these are things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the what? Christ. Not that the Christ conscience came upon him, but that he is the Christ, amen? He's the Mashiach, he's the Messiah, the son of God. Not a son of God, because the Gnostics taught that there were many eons. And they absorbed Jesus into their cosmology as one eon of many. And he's just one helper to help us get to the Pleroma. It's not through his death on the cross that we get there. It's through the gnosis that he shares. Just as after Yahweh imprisoned us, they taught, many of those different versions of Gnosticism, but among the most popular teachings was that Sophia channeled the serpent, and Sophia was like the Christ consciousness or the Christ entity, the Christ eon. Sophia possessed the serpent and told Eve how she'd be set free from Yahweh, the creator who trapped her in the human bodies. And it was through the serpent that you get gnosis, knowledge, how to be set free. Eve, you shall be as God. Well, that, the Bible says that was Satan's lie. But in Gnosticism, everything is inverted. Everything's twisted where you now, the devil, Satan becomes the savior and God becomes the devil because he's a creator. So understand, when you start to understand what's going on here, it's really, really heavy. And you start to see how it fits together. You see, uh, a lot of what we had about Gnosticism was written in against heresies by Irenaeus. And that's the second century work by my favorite church father. I love Justin Martyr, but I like Irenaeus because he he's uses way more scripture. Justin Martyr is more philosophical, and I think he's cool. I love Justin Martyr too. But Irenaeus, man, he's constantly quoting the scripture. And guess what Irenaeus called his treatise against Gnosticism? And he basically spent a lot of time learning what they taught. And you go through that. And by the way, a lot of people thought he's got to be making this stuff up. There's so many weird teachings they have. A lot of people said it can't be, it's not credible, it can't be, it's just too bizarre. And then guess what happened in 1945? About 80 years ago, just over 80 years ago, they found the Nag Hammadi Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, right? Right by where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. And, they, they, and guess what? Well, Irenaeus is right. But you know what he called it? Against heresies, the popular term is against heresies. But you know what was his name for it? When you look at the full name, it's against that which is falsely called gnosis. That which is falsely called knowledge. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at the very last verse. I should, I'm sorry. Oh, verse 20, second last verse. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is what? Avoid, avoid posing arguments of what is called what? Knowledge. In the Greek, it's what is called gnosis. Avoid the opposing arguments of that which is called gnosis. Irenaeus took that title, took what Paul said right there, and he used it for the top of his treatise against Gnosticism. And Irenaeus believed that the hotbed for Gnosticism was Ephesus and that Paul was writing against the Gnostics in 1 Timothy. Isn't that interesting? Which I think is really fascinating because you know who the church father is that coined the term Trinity? Anybody remember him? Tertullian. 
You know what Tertullian did with 1 Timothy? Tertullian used Paul's expression here in 1 Timothy 1.4, myths and endless genealogies. See that expression? The church father Tertullian, who was a second and third century church father, he quotes the myths and genealogies as evidence and adds this, that was written against the Gnostics, and adds this, which the inspired apostle, meaning Paul, which the inspired apostle by anticipation condemned, whilst the seeds, whilst the seeds of heresy were even then shooting forth. So he's saying that the Gnostic seeds of heresies of the proto-Gnostics, the incipient Gnostics, that became full-blown in the second and third century were all already shooting forth through the false teachers at Ephesus. Isn't that interesting? And that's why I go deep. We could have gotten through three or four, just moved on. I think it's really awesome when you really understand. You're like, what did the church fathers say? And so forth. And what was the understanding? What was going on at Ephesus? And so forth. And then you start to realize, like, wow, Irenaeus uses against heresies. He used the title from 1 Timothy 6.20. And Tertullian uses 1.4 and says, hey, this is for evidence that Paul was anticipating the heresies that would come in the second and third century because they were in germ form there. And I think a lot of the evidence is pretty clear because guess what? <laughs> I think this is interesting. Why do you think Paul emphasizes in 1 Timothy 2.5, if you look at it, 1 Timothy 2.5, he says there's only what? One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a newer Christian, I was memorizing that verse, I would, I get stuck a little bit. I go, God, you know what you're doing? I just don't understand why man is emphasized. I was so much, Jesus is God. Of course he's man, Right? But 1 Timothy, you know, 1, 5, 2, 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I'd have to make sure I said the word man. I'm like, God, why do you have man there? Now, I, then years went by, I'm like, that's why you said man there. And it won't be brought up probably in almost any commentary, but when you start to realize what Timothy is doing, it's very important. Because the Gnostics taught that there were many eons, right? Many saviors that would help you have victory over the archons, the demiurgs, to get out of this body and get to the demiurge through gnosis. And the, the scriptures say, no, no, no. There's one mediator between God and man. Only one. And he's not going to help you get past the demiurgs and the archons. He's going to help you have victory over the devil, amen, and the very entities that are inspiring Gnosticism. But there's one mediator between God and man, the man because they denied that God had become a man. The man Christ Jesus. The anthropos Christ Jesus. Because they denied two things. They denied that Jesus was anything more than a man, but the Christ was never a man. And they denied that Jesus was God. Well, the scriptures are very clear. Jesus is God, amen? That's Jesus Christ. He's also man. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.8, it talks about Jesus is a descendant of David. Ooh, there's some genealogy there. But it's not endless genealogies. It's not mythology. It's that he's a real man. He descended from David, King David. The line of David was prophesied Messiah to be born of a virgin, amen. But he's also God in the flesh from the spirit of God, amen. He's God and man, Christ Jesus, amen. amen. Remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead because they denied the resurrection. Because guess what? Why would there be a resurrection? We're made of flesh and that's, it's wicked. Why would God want us to be resurrected? The flesh is evil. God made us body, soul, and spirit, amen? He made us body too. And he said, he declared that it was good, not just good, but what? Very good, very good. amen, very good. 
And guess what? Do you remember Jesus Christ? Not remember just Jesus. Not remember just Christ. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and descended, descendant of David according to my gospel. That's part of the gospel. 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out in the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Those who, now they say Jesus came in the flesh, but the Christ came upon him. But he says these deceivers deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Wow. This is what's falsely called gnosis. Now, falsely called gnosis, 1 Timothy 6.20. They use the word gnosis. Gnosis comes from the word gnosis. The word no, to know, no, no, comes from gnosis. And salvation is through knowing and having more knowledge. The Bible says salvation comes through what Christ did on the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's why it gets really heavy. Because in 2 Timothy, because we know what Hymenaeus was saying. Philetus, Alexander, the kind of teaching they were teaching. Go quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when you get there... 2 Timothy chapter 2, go ahead and look at verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus. He was in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, or 19 and 20. One of the elders, perhaps, that was leading people astray. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that what? The resurrection has already taken place and they what? Upset the faith of some. The Gnostics denied the resurrection. They turned it into a spiritual thing. When you look at Irenaeus, emphasis, physical resurrection. When you look at Justin Martyr, when you look at Tertullian, he has a whole treatise on the resurrection of flesh against the Gnostics, just like Irenaeus does. In fact, did you know that Irenaeus, he quotes so many Verses, it's amazing, in the Old and the New Testament. It's crazy how many. But you know what scripture he went to the most out of any scripture? 1 Corinthians 15. Irenaeus quotes more than anything else. Verses 50 through 54. 50 through 52 about the resurrection, our coming resurrection against the Gnostics. And these, these teachers were saying, oh, there's no physical resurrection. Oh, guess how, what else they were teaching? Well, it was in germ form. But he's anticipating it become uglier. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's go there now. I mentioned it earlier. Verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctors of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage. A lot of the Gnostics don't get married. There were libertines, anything goes. The flesh is created by Yahweh, he's evil, so you can just have sex with anybody. They were the libertines. But there were also the ascetics. Since the flesh is evil, don't even get married. Don't procreate. We don't want to bring children into the world because the flesh is evil. And we don't want to entrap these souls. And look what it says here. Forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. You don't want to eat animals. That are made by Yahweh, their, their bodies abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Wow. The refutation of and overthrow of the knowledge falsely so-called. That's the official name of against heresies. Now it's interesting. What am I showing you here? What are you seeing here? You're seeing that Gnosticism is addressed because I'm showing you first and second Timothy that there's a, a, a denial of don't get married don't eat meat, don't eat foods, right? 
right? Uh, there's an emphasis, no, Jesus, there's one mediator, it's only Jesus, and he was born from David, and guess what? He's the only mediator. There's not many mediators, and the mediator is Jesus Christ. And by the way, the very next verse, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If salvation is not through gnosis, it's through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for everyone, amen? That which is falsely called gnosis. So, by the way, what did Peter say in 1 Peter 1, 16? That we have not followed cunningly devised fables, amen? But we follow the word of God, amen? amen? And Peter said, we heard him speak from heaven. We are eyewitnesses of Jesus. What does Luke say in the book of Acts, first few verses? That by many infallible proofs, Jesus showed himself alive, amen? We don't follow mythology. We don't follow uh, uh, ridiculous genealogies of the pleroma. We follow the revelation of God's holy word, amen? amen? And we must hold fast the true gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? And recognize this very spirit of Gnosticism that was alive and well in the first century is rampant today. To do what thou wilt. Crowley had what he called the Gnostic Mass. The New Age movement, it's the most popular religion in Hollywood. Wicca came from Crowley's Gnosticism. Most popular among the teens, the religion. Most popular religion among the uh, Hollywood is, is magic and the occult and the New Age movement. It's all the worship of demons. Look what we've been exposing in Disney and, and Marvel and Hollywood and music for years, guys. Let's hold fast to the teachings of Jesus Christ, amen. And, and I'm encouraging you right now by way of application. You need to love God's truth. You need to recognize that Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that what? Proceeds out of the mouth of God. You need to look at his word as like your, your, your daily bread. Amen? It's more important to me, Jeremiah said, than my daily bread. And you need to make sure if you're in a fellowship that's teaching a bunch of false doctrines or any damnable heresy, flee. If you're in a fellowship says, well, they don't teach heresy, they just don't teach against it either. There's a lot of churches because they're seeker sensitive and they follow Rick Warren and seeker sensitivism. They just never come against false teaching and their people believe all kinds of heresies, man. Some believe killing kids is okay. Some believe homosexuality is okay. But you, because they don't preach against these things because they want to get more and more people, okay? We must take a stand for truth, amen? To not take a stand for truth is to allow people to be swallowed up by error, Amen? Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your living word. We pray.